0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: So today we have people who are addicted to pornography. We have people who are addicted to gambling. We have people who are, you know, addicted to a variety of different things. You know what addiction is, or, or, or the term itself, really? It is just a, a modern, sort of a secular term for what the Bible would refer to as slavery to sin. It's extreme forms of slavery to sin.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7, in a message titled, Redeemed and Forgiven. Now here's Pastor Brian.
1: So as most of you know, we are currently making our way through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. We are early into our study. We're here in just the first chapter, and we've been looking at verses 3 through 14, and we come today to verse 7. Now, up until this point, Paul has as we pointed out, he's been declaring to us God's great work of salvation, and he's been highlighting the work of God the Father. And he has told us that it, it was God the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, in love, he also predestined us to adoption as children by Jesus Christ to himself, And then Paul says, as we previously considered, he's done all of this by his glorious grace and and through his glorious grace, he has accepted us in the beloved or he's made us accepted in the beloved or as we pointed out, he's highly favored us in the beloved. And so this brings us now to a consideration of the work of the beloved, the work of the son, the work of the second person of the Trinity, the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And verse seven then tells us in him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And so redemption, the Bible is all about redemption. We are a redeemed people And literally from cover to cover in Scripture, that is what we find. Redemption means deliverance by payment of a price. Deliverance by payment from a price. So we are redeemed people. We have been delivered by the payment of a price. And redemption is especially applied to the ransoming of slaves, the ransoming of slaves, the the pain of a price to set people free primarily from slavery. The great Old Testament example is Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And God used the, the term redemption when he spoke of what he would do for them. There in Exodus, he said, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And so we find this repeated over and over again. I think of the the 103rd Psalm where we're told there about the blessings and the, the many things that that God does for us and, and one of them is that he redeems your life from destruction. So the, this theme of redemption, it is woven throughout the entire scripture. It is really one of the main themes of the Bible. When we come to the New Testament, we have many many references to Christ redeeming us. One of them we're looking at here this morning, but let me give you a few other examples. In Matthew 20 verse 28, Jesus said this. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So to give his life a ransom, it's to, that that is to pay the price of redemption. Jesus came to pay the price of redemption, he said. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he would use this very terminology. He spoke of Jesus Christ as having given himself as a ransom for all. And when Peter wrote his first letter in the first chapter, uh, the 18th and the 19th verses, he said this, he said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. So you see, all through the New Testament, this this threat of redemption is running. When we come to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and there in the fifth chapter, we have this picture of what it's going to be like as we all are assembled there before the throne of God. These are the words that we read. It says, now when he, speaking of Jesus, had taken the scroll the four living creatures. He took the scroll out of the hand of the the father sitting upon the throne. As he did that, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, listen, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is the song that we are going to be singing someday, the song of redemption. You were slain and you have redeemed us to God. And so as we see here, when when Paul says that in him, in the son, we have redemption, he's expounding on this theme that is one of the primary themes of the entire scripture. We we could actually refer to the Bible as the history of redemption. That's really what it is. You know, sometimes people are a bit um, puzzled as to why the Bible doesn't give more details about, uh, you know, certain people or places or, you know, things like that. Well, we have to understand the Bible is not a, a history of the world. It's not even a history of any particular nation. It, it, to some degree, it's a history of the nation of Israel, but it is primarily the history of redemption. That's what we have in the scripture. Now, as we're saying here, the, uh, the redemption is from slavery and the slavery is slavery to sin. Jesus said in John chapter eight, he said, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave of sin, that's where we find ourselves. That's the the entire human race is in this situation where we are all enslaved to sin. And in some cases, that is more obvious than in other cases. But regardless of of whether it is blatant and observable or not, it is true. Our natural state is one of being enslaved to sin. We do things we don't want to do, and we don't do things that we want to do and know we should do. That's the human condition, isn't it? You know, in in our current cultural situation, there's a lot of talk about addiction, and there's a lot of people who are addicted to a variety of things. And addiction used to be limited primarily to physiological things and and addiction to substances, you know, drug addiction or addiction to alcohol and so forth. But, you know, today the the whole idea of addiction has really broadened to include so many things that people find themselves addicted to, meaning behaviors that they're engaging in that they don't really want to engage in to some degree. They know these behaviors are detrimental to themselves and to others, but they can't seem to stop doing it. So today we have people who are addicted to pornography. We have people who are addicted to gambling. We have people to, who are addicted to shopping. We have people who are you know, addicted to a variety of different things. You know what addiction is or or, or the term itself, really? It is just a a modern sort of a secular term for what the Bible would refer to as slavery to sin. It's it's extreme uh, forms of slavery to sin. Jesus came to break those powers over us that, that hold us, that bind us. He came to To break the power of sin in our lives, He opens the prison door. He sets the captives free. That's what the scripture declared He would do. And He does this through what we're talking about here. This is what He's accomplished through redemption. He has redeemed us, He has set us free from the captivity to sin. Now, I want you to notice that Paul says that we have redemption through his blood. Now, I believe Paul uses blood here very intentionally. Now, Paul could have said, as he actually does say in other places or other biblical writers would say the same thing, uh, he could have said that we have redemption through his death, which of course is true. But he intentionally uses blood. Why does he do that? Well, he's doing it to make the connection back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, we've got to remember this. Jesus didn't just show up in history without any previous notification that he was going to come. He just didn't you know, come out of nowhere And suddenly start doing these things and and ultimately, you know, end up being crucified on a cross and then telling everybody, well, you know, this is how the sins of the world are forgiven. That it didn't happen that way. There was this long, long history of preparation through the Old Testament sacrificial system. So Jesus' death on the cross and the shedding of his blood was the fulfillment of what those Old Testament sacrifices were anticipating. You see, he came in fulfillment of those things. The Levitical sacrificial system, and what that's referring to would be that elaborate system that was developed. God gave all the instructions to Moses, and Moses implemented this. There was a tabernacle that was erected. It It was built out. That was the place where the sacrifices could be offered. There was a priesthood that was instituted. They would be the ones to offer the sacrifices. And then there were very specific instructions given on um, what kind of sacrifices were to take place. So this Levitical sacrificial system was established approximately 1,400 years before the time that Christ came into the world. 1,400 years before Jesus came, all of this was instituted. Now, about halfway through that, About 700 BC, Isaiah wrote these words. In Isaiah 53, he wrote this, speaking of the servant of the Lord who was to come, he wrote, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, here's the amazing thing. Halfway through this 1400 year period, all of a sudden God shines some light in and we get a glimpse into what these sacrifices are all about. The sacrifices themselves could never really permanently take away sin. Hebrews tells us that. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They temporarily could cover it, but they could never take it away. But these things were pointing to the Savior, the Messiah, who would come and he would offer up himself as a sacrifice. And so Isaiah was given the privilege of of making this known. So suddenly, there was something else being connected to the whole sacrificial system, something to do with the Messiah, which at the time, nobody would have really understood that. But then further along, as the prophets would, would continue to prophesy, and as, the, as, as they would get nearer to the actual coming of Jesus, the, this picture began to be a little bit more spelled out. But Jesus comes and he then brings the the full and complete revelation of what was really intended by those sacrifices. But you know, you can go even further back than the institution of the Levitical system through Moses. You can go all the way back to the very beginning of time. God has been communicating this message from the very beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis. Maybe you remember the story there. Adam and Eve sinned, right? And when they sinned, suddenly they realized something that they did not previously know. They realized that they were naked. And they suddenly experienced shame because of their sin. And what did they do? they attempted to cover their nakedness and were told that they made fig leaves to cover their nakedness. But those fig leaves were inadequate. And so we're told there that God, he covered them with animal skins. And what he did is he slew animals, lambs presumably, and he covered them. And that is the beginning of God be, uh, communicating to us that we could never cover our own sin and shame. Our sin and shame must be covered by him, and it must be covered by the death of an innocent victim. All the way back to the very beginning, that message began to be communicated. And then as time went on further, we come to Abraham. And Abraham is called by God to take his son, his only son, Isaac, and to offer him on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham does that. He goes in obedience and he takes Isaac with him. And Isaac is a, is a grown man at this time. He's, a, he's you know, probably a man in his 20s. And as they're making their way up the hill for the sacrifice to take place, Isaac notices something. He notices they've got the wood for the sacrifice. He's noticed they've got the, the means to, to make the fire but he recognizes something's missing. And he says to Abraham, his father, he says, father, uh, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said this, he said, my son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Abraham was speaking prophetically. The Lord would provide himself a sacrifice. Yes, there would be a sacrifice that would ultimately be provided God would provide himself. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus came. He's God, the son, and he himself becomes the sacrifice. And so we have it there. We have it in the Passover lamb in Egypt. Remember, as God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, you remember the method that he used. There was instruction given that God was going to pass through the land and he was, he was going to slay all of the firstborn in the land. And this was the instruction that he gave, that the people were to take a lamb, they were to slay it, and they were to put the blood over the doorpost of their homes. And God said, wherever I see the blood, I will pass over. The, where the, wherever the blood is, there will be exemption from judgment, in other words. And so we see this being played out all throughout history. The the Passover lamb. Then Jesus comes onto the scene, and remember the first thing that was said about him by John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How's he gonna take away the sin of the world? He's gonna take it away by the shedding of his blood. And then as we go, we find that the lamb that was slain on the day of atonement the blood was taken it was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the holy of holies so my point is this all of these things were looking forward to Christ as the lamb whose blood was shed to take away our sin so from the very dawn of time throughout all of the the preceding history right up to the cross itself it was all being uh, spelled out and prepared for, and Jesus came in fulfillment of it and so, as paul is is explaining to us here, the greatness of our salvation and the involvement of the persons uh, of the persons of the Godhead is the word that 's used quite often, but uh, those three persons who make up the one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as we've seen God, the plan originated with God, he planned it, but the son is the one who is now carrying it out by coming and allowing his blood to be shed so that our redemption can come. And so in him, we have redemption through his blood. And then also we have the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a separate thing, but it's connected. Redemption and forgiveness are two different things, but but they're connected because the blood is necessary for both the redemption and for the forgiveness of sins to come. Forgiveness of sins, what an amazing thing it is. You know, have you ever, and, and, and let's not even talk about for just the moment here, let's not even talk about the forgiveness that God gives us, but let's just think of it more on on the human level. Have you ever done something where you've hurt somebody, you've offended somebody? You, you know, you've, you've done something really bad or wrong to somebody, and they have forgiven you. Have, you. have you ever had that experience? You know what a what a wonderful experience that is, really. To be forgiven is a wonderful thing. To know that that foolish thing, that, you know, in some cases, that evil thing that you've done, to know that that's no longer being held against you. That is, that is one of the greatest feelings in all the world, to have that guilt lifted off of us. I've told this story before, and um, I had that experience many, many years ago, uh, just again, strictly on the human level, where I had done something, and I, I kept it hidden because I was so embarrassed having done it, I didn't wanna confess it, but I, I finally had to confess it, and when I did, and I received the forgiveness, oh, it was just it was such a wonderful thing. But what happened is years and years ago, Pastor Chuck used to he did all kinds of wonderful things for Cheryl and I, and you know he would always come over to our house and you know help with uh, maintaining the yard or you know fixing up the house or uh, building a fence or you know whatever. He was always very, very helpful with those kinds of things so um One of the things he did was uh, he bought me a really nice lawnmower. And so he bought me a nice lawnmower. One day he came over and he was, I think he was in the backyard. He was working uh, on a fence or something. And his car was parked out along uh, the front of the house there. And uh, the the wonderful lawnmower that he got for me, I pulled it out and I was mowing the lawn there. And I, I went out to mow that strip of grass that's kind of between your house and the sidewalk there. And as I was mowing the, the basket on the mower, there was a metal uh, part of it on the edge. And you know, the lawnmower's really loud, so you're not really hearing anything. And I'm going along, all of a sudden I look up and I am putting this massive scratch uh, from one end of Pastor Chuck's car all the way to the other with uh, the basket on my lawnmower. And I see that, I mean, it's literally gone from the very front of the car all the way to the back probably a good quarter of an inch of paint peeled completely off and I looked at that and I thought oh my goodness I cannot believe I've done this
0: For the month of October, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. Our identity as a Christian is defined by who God says we are, and our identity in Christ connects us to God. But pornography attempts to unglue our identity from God and from others. It skews and distorts true manhood and true womanhood, enslaving millions. So in his book, The Death of Porn, Ray Ortland reminds us of the royal identity of men and women and the practical ways the bondage of pornography can be broken. If you want to be equipped to face the slavery of pornography in your life or the life of others, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility by Ray Ortland. is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God.